Our sermon text this morning is from, uh, is actually all of Genesis chapter 15. Uh, as I was looking through it, it's like, man, I could have, should have broken this up. But then again, it, I don't know, just didn't make sense to do that. So we're all of 15. It's not a very long chapter. We're here to hear the word of our God. After these things, meaning what happened with uh, Abram rescuing Lot and all that happened with Melchizedek, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. He brought him outside and said, Look toward the heaven, and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell on him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners, in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you should go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete." When the sun had gone down and was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadamites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, and the Gagashites, and the Jebusites. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. Let us pray. Father, I ask that you would grant us a spirit of wisdom and revelation, the Holy Spirit, who illumines your word that we might know you. So I ask that you would make yourself more fully known to us this morning. We need to know you, as the scripture we just read implies. Be gracious to us this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. Is there anyone here who loves to wait? I didn't think so. I hate waiting. Period. 
I can't even wait at the grocery store. I get all agitated. Because it seems I inevitably pick the wrong line. Maybe, you know, you're that kind of person too. And so when Amy and I are together, we make sure that she picks the line. Because I always seem to find the worst, slowest line is the person with the slowest cashier who has to deal with all the people who want to write checks. Who still writes checks? Okay, there's a couple of you who still write checks. (laughs) Don't be offended if I see you ahead of me in line and go to another line, okay? That's not a very long wait, is it? Think of a longer wait that we experience, okay? I was 36 when I got married. That's a long wait in adulthood. You know, you start to think, am I ever going to get married? Is this thing ever going to happen? You start to really wonder and, and doubt. And then, of course, we finally got married, and then it was, are we ever going to have children? Waiting. But those are things that we hope for, we long for, but we're not sure that they're actually going to be ours. Shortly after I became a Christian, I had one of those very unpresbyterian moments, which Presbyterians actually talk about because when I was examined for ordination, they asked me, what's your sense of inward call? Well, I had one of those moments where I, I sensed shortly after my conversion that I was called to ministry. That was 1986. Fast forward to 1997. I'd gone through seminary. I'd been out of seminary for a few years. And I'm wondering, did I hear you right? (laughs) Did you really call me to ministry? Because apparently no one thinks I'm belonging in ministry. There was a struggle. Was God's word going to come to pass? Was this ever going to happen? I was waiting for well over a decade. Is this really going to happen? And actually, as you can tell right now, it did. whether it's for good or bad, you can be the judge of that, you know. But still, that was Abram. His is not the waiting of a supermarket. It wasn't even the waiting of a man longing to be married. And though it was the longing, the waiting for a child, it was not just a will it happen, but God had said to me it was going to happen. That's the waiting that is wearing down the soul of Abram in this text. Partially of what's going on. The big idea this morning is that God delights in our faith and entertains our doubts. So we'll talk about that. Uh, The structure here is kind of interesting because we actually have two visions that take place. We're not sure what time frame exists between these two visions, but Moses has arranged them together, and the hinge of these two visions is justification or faith. That, you know, that, um, ugh. God took his righteousness, as faith as righteousness, or counted it as righteousness. I'll get that later, better later. We know that there's two visions because in the first one, Abram is brought outside by God to look at the stars. So if you're seeing the stars, what time of day is it? Nighttime. What happens in the midst of the second vision? The sun is going down. It starts during the day and it ends at night. So these are two different visions. They're not the same. So that's what's going on. That's the structure of of Genesis 15 for us to look at. And um, I've got four points, not three points today because it didn't happen. Okay? Sorry. You get a bonus point. This is good. And the the first part of this that we see, and this is going to be difficult because I'm going to bounce back and forth between the two visions because they're parallel. 
they, they deal with really the same things. There's a structure of, of promise, then doubt, and then confirmation that exists in each of these. So that's what we're going to hit. Promise, doubt, confirmation, and then the hinge point of all of this. And so the, the first idea of the promise is that faith receives God's promises. We see that Abram must have been fearful because God shows up and he says, don't be afraid. God wouldn't tell him that if he wasn't afraid. What is Abraham afraid of? Well, I could imagine that he might think that the four kings might come back for a second go-round. That these kings that he defeated in chapter 14 might decide they want to come back and they want, might want to take vengeance on him when he least expected it, just as he got them when they least expected it. So he might be afraid of that very thing. In fact, I'm sure it is. And so it, it starts off with this, I am. Both visions will have that. When God starts the promise, it starts with this idea of, I am. The character of God, the nature of God is going to be revealed, and he, he is using this to reassure the faith of fearful Abraham. And first off, he says, I am your shield. There's two words for shield. This is the one that has a small round shield. But interestingly enough, this word for shield is often used in some contexts to reveal or to, to declare that someone is a, sovereign, a suzerain lord over somebody. With the idea that I am the one who protects you. That's the idea that we have here. He is saying that I am the one who's going to protect you. You don't have to be afraid precisely because I'm the one watching out over you. I am the one who's got your back. And not only that, I've got your front and both sides. You are going to be secure. There is no reason to fear precisely because I am here. And remember, I am the one who delivered that man, those four kings, into your hand. Surely I am powerful enough to protect you from them again. And it's interesting because, because the, the word for deliver and the word for shield are very similar. So there's kind of like this little play of word that goes, words that goes on in the Hebrew. So that there's a direct connection between these two things in the text. Shield. Not only that, but he says, your reward will be great. And this is uh, variously translated. Actually, I didn't even check to see what the ESV does with that because I wasn't going to use the ESV this morning. It uh, doesn't really say. Okay. It says, your reward will be great, but the NIV takes this as God himself is the reward. We'll talk about that in a moment. But what's, what's the idea of a reward first? The idea of a reward is compensation for military campaign. Once again, there's a connection to what we saw in Genesis 14. Abram has just given away his reward. He has just given away his payment, so to speak, for this military campaign he undertook. He's got nothing to show for it, and God says, it's going to be great. Don't sweat it. Don't fear that poverty may come upon you. I like what the, the way the NIV does it because it, it has the idea that the greatness of the reward is that God's, God is the great reward. <laughs> he is the one. God's greatest promise is himself. And as we look at Scripture, we find that that is not something that would be unique to this particular text. But we see in various Psalms, we, we read this. Contend, O Lord, with those who fight, who contend with me. Fight against those who fight against me. 
take up shield and buckler, arise and come to my aid. So there's God as sort of this um, one who defends. But also in Psalm 73, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. A different word is used than the one we find for uh, reward, but it has the same concept, the same idea uh, of booty from a battle. So God is the, our great reward there in 73. In Psalm 142, we find something just similar to that. I cry to you, O Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. And so Psalm 73 combines both those aspects of God, our protector, and God who is our great reward. Again, in Proverbs 2, we see, He holds victory in store for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk, whose walk is blameless. For he guards the course of the just and protects the way of his faithful ones. So we see God both through the scriptures as this shield and protector, but also a great portion, our portion in the land of the living, our reward, our booty, so to speak. What I hear here, though, is if God is our reward... And he must reveal this to Abram. He reveals this idea to Abram in a vision. And I'm hoping that none of you has, have visions. <laughs> okay? How are we to know God? He, he met with God through visions. There were no scriptures at that point in time. And so he had a direct experience with God. But we have the scriptures. We do not have this direct experience with God. And so we meet with God and we get to know who God is precisely through the scriptures. But if we never open the scriptures and we're not, we don't pay attention to the scriptures, then we will not know who God is. And so when the fear strikes us, we will not really be able to trust him because we really don't have a knowledge of him. We were talking about this uh, briefly in officer training yesterday, uh, that part of what's going on and when we look at the qualifications for office is that, is that both elders and deacons have a working knowledge of the scriptures and of theology. They don't have to have it all down, but they have to have a working knowledge of the scriptures and theology. And so... They know God because they know the Scriptures. And the Holy Spirit illuminates the Scriptures to them so that they know who God is. Not only that, but we see that, that God roots His promise in the second vision of the land and that He brought Abram out of Ur. For He says, I am the Lord who brought you up out of Ur of the Chaldees to give you this land to possess. And so he, God points to the personal history of Abram and his interaction with God and says, the reason why you're even here, Abram, is because of me. I have taken you not just out of Ur, but I've taken you out of the idolatry of Ur. And I have brought you to this place that not only are you in Canaan, but you worship me. You know me. Not because of you, but because of me, he says. And so we draw up not just upon God's mighty word, His true word, but we also, as Christians, we draw upon His actions within our personal history. That's one of the beauties of journaling, which I've gotten away from, actually. But you remember how God has been at work in your life in the past, the trials that He has seen you through, the difficulties that He has sustained you in, the many prayers that He has answered 
that should encourage you to know the goodness of His heart, the strength and, and the, the, the faithfulness of Him to His promises to His people. And so faith, because of these things, because of His Word and the knowledge of Him, and because of remembering what He has done for us in our past, really receives God's promises. So faith actually enjoys God Himself as protector and greater gift, greatest gift. Let's move to, to doubt. And the idea that, is, that we see in the Scriptures here is that faith expresses doubts and fears to God. In both of these instances, he experiences doubt. Abraham has a measure of doubt for both of these promises that God has given. In the first instance, Abram points to his childlessness. It's a painful word that he uses because it has this idea of being stripped down. He's broken. It's difficult for him. He feels it has this idea of being alone in the world. And he says, I don't have an heir. Basically, he's saying, when, Lord, when are you going to do this? We're not sure exactly how much time passed between the initial call out of Ur until now, but it's years. Not months, not days, it's years. It's probably getting close to a decade at this point. Maybe even more. It is years of the the monthly reminder that you don't have a child. The disappointment that arises. Been there, done that, wept on that. That's what he goes through for probably a decade. And so he says, God, you promised me this. Where is it? When is this going to happen? And right now, if I died, my servant Eliezer from Damascus is going to get everything. When? To whom will my reward go? You say you're going to give me something great. To, to who, who's it going to go to? <laughs> Eliezer? What happens is that doubt grows in what I call the dirt of delay and depravity. We are inclined due to our depravity to doubt and to distrust. And when the days build up into weeks and the weeks build up into months and the months build up into years and the years build up into decades, it is fertile ground for doubt because of our depravity. And that is what is happening to Abram. In the second vision... He expresses it this way, slightly different. How can I know I'll possess the land? Sounds strange coming from Abram, doesn't it? And part of that is because we're we're reading about his whole life, you know, uh, over a decade, sort of in, you know, it's been three chapters. And we, 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 we don't really grasp the length of time that he has dealt with this. But he has that question. How 
will I know? Haven't you seen this land, God? It's filled with people. How am I going to get rid of all these people so that I can possess this land? In this instance, it's not so much the it's there is the delay and the depravity, but also we see that doubt seeks certainty beyond God's word. We we struggle with the bare promises of God. We want to know for certain beyond the reality of who gave us this. We want proof. We want a sign. We want something. That's what Abram is wrestling with here. Now, I, just, I mentioned that faith expresses these things. There are some doubts that are not antithetical, so to speak, to faith. What happens here is that faith does not hide the doubts, but rather he expresses them to God. What happens so often when people doubt is that they express their doubts to everyone but God. That's unbelief. The only one who can deal with our doubts is really ultimately is God. He is the one to whom we should go when we have these doubts, when we're experiencing the delay and things aren't making sense at that particular point in time. He is the one that we should go to. Faith will have us seek Him out and to lay these before His feet. God, what's going on here? I don't understand. That's what faith will do. Unbelief will sort of hide them in a corner or express them to everyone or think that, you know, if I, if I tell this to God, he's going to be mad and beat me up or something. I don't know what. But I'm not going to tell him. That's unbelief, ultimately. So faith doesn't hide these doubts. It expresses them, and we see in the Scriptures, particularly, that there is such a thing as a godly complaint. Go to the Psalms. <laughs> They're all over the place. These people are wrestling with their circumstances and God's promise and going, okay, help me here. (laughs) They're making an honest complaint before God. In fact, Jeremiah Burroughs, one of the great Puritans in his book, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, says that true contentment, true Christian contentment, does not rule out complaint. Doesn't that sound weird? How can you be content by complaining? (laughs) And yet he says that you're you're, you're recognizing that God is in control of your current circumstances and your future circumstances. But you're also saying to God, please fulfill the promise you made. Please keep your word. That's what we find in the Psalms. That's what we find in many places in Scripture. And that is part of what prayer is. Part of prayer is pleading those promises with the Father. It's being honest about the brokenness of our hearts. Say, Lord, I'm struggling here. It's not you, it's me. (laughs) But I'm struggling. Can you please keep your promises to me? And so faith in the, in the presence of doubt moves toward God as opposed to being a, moving away from God. 
confirmation. We see that God strengthens faith through creation and covenant. God does not silence Abram's doubts. He does not get mad at Abram. He does not verbally abuse him, does not insult him. He condescends or stoops down to strengthen him. In the first vision, he reaffirms that the air will come from Abram's body, and they've sort of glossed over that a little bit in the ESV. Because he basically says, from your loins, from the inmost part of you, you will have a child. Is what he says to him. Adoption is a great thing, and for, for many people, it is, a, it is plan A to have children uh, because of God's providence. But in this particular instance, adoption is not plan A or plan B or plan C for Abram. God says, my plan is you're going to have a baby, and it's going to be your baby. Trust me. He doesn't just do that. He takes them by the hand like a father leads his son and they go outside. I do, sometimes I have to do this with my children. Like last night, Jaden couldn't find something and I saw it. So I had to like take her by the hand. Come here. What do you see? <laughs> so this is kind of what God is doing. Takes Abram by the hand, so to speak, because you know, he brings him outside. Look up. Can you count them? You can't. That's what your heirs will be like. That's what your descendants will be like. They'll be as numerous as the stars in the sky. That's why I didn't like last night. I was hoping to look up last night and see tons of stars, but it was a full moon. It ruined the beauty of the stars. That's the nice thing about Tucson. We don't have much light pollution, so you, can, you can't find anything, but you can look up and see lots of stars. <laughs> I'm having to adjust to that. But it's similar to where my in-laws live. They live in the middle of nowhere. And on the summer nights, you can go outside and you can look up. And just the stars filled. And that's what's more like what Abraham sees because there were no cities near him. There weren't any street lights that were going on. There was absolutely no light pollution unless he had a fire going in his, in his tent. But he, he walks outside and the number of stars is amazing. And it reminds me that sometimes we get so caught up in, in um, how small church, the church in America and every, you know, the percentage of people who are Christians. But God is really, is really saying, you can't even remember the stars. The number of those whom I have redeemed through the blood of my son, Jesus Christ, is far greater than the number of the stars in the sky, which are still beyond your counting. How great is his work of deliverance. So he points them points him to creation. Can't he who hung the stars in the sky keep this word? Is it going to be like too hard for me to give you a baby when I did all this? No, it's not. And so creation declares God's power and His wisdom to us. And I kind of wonder, are we listening sometimes? Are we so into our electronics and our toys that we... Don't walk outside and look up. That we don't see the mighty mountains that are surrounding us. The power of the sun. We know about that, don't we? Here in Tucson. We know the power of the sun, the heat of the sun. 
He made that. That's why we need to have a good, solid, biblical understanding of creation. Or we will not hear what He has to say to us in creation. We need to listen. In the second vision, He goes in a different direction, not with creation, but with covenant. He he calls Abram to to gather these animals necessary to cut a covenant. And Abram probably thinks this is bad news for him. Okay? Because usually it is the vassal who walks between the dead animals. And what happens is you have these dead animals and you you walk through and you take what what they call this oath of self-malediction, which means if I break my word, may what happened to these animals happen to me. So you're cursing yourself if you break your word. And so Abram is probably very afraid that he is about to have to walk between these animals. But he's not. Instead, we see something very different take place. But before that takes place, we see that Abram falls into this deep sleep or a trance, which is initiated by God. This is a particular word. It's a very technical word. And it's always found in these instances just like this, like when when Adam was put to sleep so that God could take a rib and make Eve. It's this kind of sleep. Same thing when Ezekiel is basically basically struck down uh, by the river Cater. God has done this. This is not an ordinary sleep. This is a profound and deep sleep. It is like a trance. It's like a God-induced coma, for lack of a better term. But not only that, but we see that terror falls upon him. It's not just the darkness, but terror comes upon him. This is a visceral, gut-churning horror. This is not mere surprise that he experiences. Uh, I was watching something the other day, and one of those moments where you're surprised. You didn't expect that to happen. I do this to Amy all the time. I'll just walk into a room, and she hasn't heard me. She who says she has better hearing than me can't hear me walking around in the house. She's trying to, oh, don't do that to me. I didn't do anything. It's not like I was going, sneaking up and go, boo. I wasn't doing anything like that. That's just mere shock and surprise. But, but what's going on here is more like 9-11. When you were glued to that TV set and you were watching what was unfolding and your stomach is churning and you feel sick because it looks like your whole world has come unhinged. Because something unfathomable has just happened. That is what he is experiencing in this moment. This darkness descends upon him. This terror descends upon him. And then God speaks. Remember, Abram said, how can I know? God says, know this. He's responding directly to this. But there is a hint of judgment, I think, that exists in this know this. Because what he's going to say is that there is going to be a lengthy delay that will take place. And it is not just so that his descendants can be like the stars in the heavens, but he says also this, they're going to be resident aliens in a place, and it's not going to go well. They're going to serve another nation. They are going to be afflicted by these people in that place. There is going to be 400 years of forced labor. They are going to be humiliated and brought to submission. But I will punish that nation. 
I will bring them out. I will enrich them through that nation. And so it ends well, but for a long time it's not so well. Abram is to know this. And he is to know as well that he will die at a ripe old age in peace, but that this will fall upon these descendants that he longs for. But notice this other thing that is right there. The justice of God. Abram's asking about the land. When am I going to get the land? And God is saying, not yet. And one of the reasons not yet is because the sin of the Amorites is not yet complete. In order for God to bring Abram's people in to the land, he must dispossess the people who are in the land, which means that there is going to be warfare, and God is just. He is waiting for the sin of the people who live in the land, the ten tribes that are mentioned down at the end of this text. He is waiting for their sin to be complete or to be full, to be brought to maturity, he says, so that when the holy war happens... It's, a, it's his judgment upon sin. A lot of people look at that past, that, that idea of the holy war that takes place when the Israelites enter into the promised land and they go, what kind of mean, horrible God is that? Well, they don't overlook this passage. He's bringing judgment upon the wicked. And he waited for 400 years. This was not a preemptive strike. This was God waiting until it was a ripe fruit to be plucked from the tree. Great was their wickedness when it finally happened. He is not mean. He is just. And he is patient. And what happens is you've got all those animals there, and it is not Abram who walks through, but we have the theophany, which is similar to that which we will find in the Exodus when they're in the wilderness. There they have the cloud of pillar and the cloud of fire. But here we've got the torch, the blazing torch and the the smoking fireplace or furnace that kind of... Remember, he's a nomad. He doesn't have a stove like you have. He's got his little portable hibachi kind of thing. Okay, Although it looks like those those portable little fire pits you can get at Ace Hardware. Give you a little plug. It's like that thing. He sees these moving... Through the animals. God himself walks through the pieces of the animal and, he, and he's saying, if I don't keep my word to you, if I don't give you the land as I promised, may I be torn to pieces. He confirms his faith with covenant as well as creation. Is what God does. And so, as we think of this reality... We see that God will keep His promise upon death, and we actually see that God keeps His promise through death, through the death of His Son. Not just the promise of the land, but all of them. Second Corinthians, all God's promises are yes in Christ Jesus. And why are they yes in Christ Jesus? He took it. And so our faith needs to look, well, we, to be strengthened in our faith, we don't look at our faith How strong is my faith today? Is it strong enough for God to save me? Is it strong enough for God to see me through this trial or crisis? We do not look at our faith like it's under a microscope. Instead, look at Christ and Him crucified. That is where we are to look. He is the surety that we need. 
The fulfillment of the promise rests upon Him, not upon the strength or weakness of our faith. It's not like God's going to go, oh, I'm not going to keep that promise to you. You had three too, few doubt, I mean, three too many doubts this week. That's not the deal. It rests upon Christ and Him crucified. And so God has provided the means for your faith to be strengthened through creation and covenant. Don't neglect them. Which brings us to the hinge, the thing that holds these two, past, these two visions together. is when God said these words. He believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. The hinge verse of this passage is justification by faith alone. Now let's keep in mind, the content of his faith was different than ours, in that he had less to believe. We have more. His was a little more vague than ours was. But now, through the progress of redemption, the progress of, re- of revelation, we know the fullness. We know far more than Abram did. We should have a far greater hope and faith than Abram in that sense. Ours is more specific and it is all wrapped up. It all comes together in Christ Jesus. So people are no longer in the uh, circumstances of Abram today. First off, that word faith, oddly enough, has that connotation to stand firm, to be certain, which we see in Hebrews 11, verse 1. We read, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their con." Commendation. It has the idea of not God might do this, but God will do this. Thought of it this morning this way. The Rangers might win the World Series. Then again, the Giants might win the World Series. That's an earthly kind of hope. You know, if you're a Ranger fan, I'm, I'm glad they beat the Rays and the Yankees. Okay. But if you're a Ranger fan, you hope without assurance, that you're, without certainty, that your team will win. You want them to win, but you don't know if they will win. But this we do know. We are certain that someone will win that World Series. We're also certain God knows who will win the World Series. And the reason we're certain God knows is because God has ordained who will win that World Series for His own reasons, lost in the the counsel of His will. Someone certainly will win that, even though we don't know. And so faith says that God will do what He says, not God might do what He says. Okay, that's, that's what's functioning here. And then we have that word credited. Credited. Yeah. The idea of thinking, accounting, imputing. God is the one here who is thinking or imputing. It's not that, that Abram is, re- is saying, you know, hey, shouldn't my faith be righteous to you? But God is saying, 
I will impute righteousness to you because you have trusted me. And as I said, the content of that faith is now more specific and clear. Now the content of our faith must be that Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God made flesh. God, and fully God, fully man, without mixture or confusion, that He is the one who is the Savior of sinners because of His substitutionary atonement and His obedience in our behalf. Those kinds of things. We receive His righteousness when we trust Him. I know, sort of like tacking on almost a Reformation Day sermon a week early, huh? Justification, as we see from here, has since the fall, always been by faith. And until Christ returns, it will always be by faith. Which is precisely why when Paul is discussing justification with the Romans, where does he go? This verse. The unity of salvation. Administered differently but it has always been by faith in God and His promises, which have unfolded over time and are now complete in Christ Jesus. So we find that the delay in fulfillment interacts with our depravity to create doubts and that we can either keep those doubts from God or we can bring those doubts to God. But know that He is willing to address those doubts through creation and covenant, inviting you to enjoy Him even more than He invites you to enjoy His promises. Let's pray. Father, our hope rests not upon our faith which ebbs and flows, which expands and shrinks, but it rests upon Christ. It rests upon Him crucified torn asunder for us. And so I ask that you would take us by the hand, that you would lead us back there when, when we doubt your love and your provision and your promises. Take us to your word, that we might see you more clearly, that we might be reminded of your great acts of redemption. But most importantly, to continually point us to the surety, Christ himself, in whom all of your promises are yes. And we ask this in the name of that great Savior of sinners and sanctifier of saints. Amen.